Hello, and welcome to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis. Today's very special episode is a recording taken from a conversation I had with the Reginator, the ex-president of Nintendo of America, Reggie Fisame. This session took place at the IGDA Finnish holiday event sponsored by Rovio. Uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to pick the mind of an industry legend, and I hope you enjoy the chat. All right. Well, thanks very much. Um, yeah, I guess just a little bit more about Reggie. Um, I, I think probably most of you might have heard of him, um, but some interesting facts. So um, obviously, recently, he was the president, chief operating officer of Nintendo of America. While he was there, he helped bring Nintendo's greatest successes, uh, Nintendo DS, Wii, Nintendo Switch, to the global marketplace. Um, he was the face and the voice that defined Nintendo of America for uh, you know 15 years. He he had a nickname. He had a fan club. He had memes. Um, his legacy has spawned record-breaking business results, memes, worldwide acclaim from business leaders, from fans alike. Uh, I was actually watching a YouTube video that he did just a few minutes before this presentation. He's the first American, uh, African-American president and chief operating officer of Nintendo of America. And he was recently inducted into the International Video Game Hall of Fame. That was in October 2019. Uh, before he joined Nintendo, yes, there was life before Nintendo. Um, he was the senior vice president of marketing at VH1. He drove innovation in numerous other roles across packaged good restaurant, media, entertainment industries. So he, he saw a lot. And then he did Nintendo for 15 years. Um, but recently, as you know, he retired from Nintendo. And since that retirement, he's dedicated uh, himself to growing the next generation of business leaders. He's the inaugural leader in residence for the Cornell University's Dyson Undergraduate Business School. Uh, he serves on the board of directors for GameStop, for Spin Master, for Brunswick. And he's a managing partner for Brentwood Growth Partners, which is a venture capital firm. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, uh, Reggie fils Ben, you're, you made me blush with that introduction. Thank you so much for all of those kind words. Oh, well, it was a pleasure. I wish I could take all the credit. Actually, <clears throat> someone um, helped me with some of the fact-finding, let's put it that way. But clearly, um, your career had a lot of memorable moments along the way, and, and that's really what we want to get into, is, 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 is picking apart a little bit some of your career and your, your thoughts about the future. So let's start with intellectual property. Um, Nintendo's intellectual property are some of perhaps arguably the most durable in the history of entertainment. Mario, Zelda, many others, the list goes on and on. Um, I think there's this assumption that it's just somehow natural, that it's just like it happens. Yay, worldwide, like, you know, incredibly popular uh, IP. Um, they just seem to somehow effortlessly appear out of nowhere. Uh, clearly, the truth is, is not quite that simple. Can you shed some light on your experiences and observations there? So building forever franchises, how do you protect and modernize them? Anything from your, your time at Nintendo or, or otherwise that, that sort of sits on that theme? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to share. And you know, let, me, let me just set the stage a little bit. You know, these are observations from my time at Nintendo. Uh, as I'm very quick to say, I'm not a developer, right? I never wrote a line of code. But certainly, I was there as discussions were had in terms of how to keep key franchises fresh, key franchises like Zelda, key franchises like Mario. And what I would share is that first, 
Nintendo developers really are committed to keeping franchises fresh. And I, I can give so many examples, you know, from, from the Wayback Machine, look at how Metroid transitioned from a 2D platformer to the executions of Metroid Prime, right? And, and how Nintendo thought about keeping that franchise fresh. Obviously, they're working on the next iteration of that franchise. For me personally, I, I love the story of what was done with Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. You know, the, they're all about adventuring. They're about saving Hyrule. But in creating Breath of the Wild, Nintendo very specifically broke a number of conventions within that game. You know, you, you didn't have the linear format that you typically do in a Zelda game. It was much more wide open. The way they handled the, the side missions and the quests were a new introduction. The fact that your weapons would break, right? So here you would go, you'd find this wonderful weapon and it would break versus in the traditional Zelda games, it was all about finding that one tool, that one weapon that would allow you to unlock that next dungeon. So very purposeful in how they think about reinventing a franchise to keep it fresh. In order to do that, they're very thoughtful around what is core to a franchise. What is it that you know is at its heart? And then where can you mm-hmm. expand to do things differently? And you know, an example there is Super Mario Galaxy, right? Super Mario Galaxy is a classic Super Mario game. It's exploration, it's saving the princess, but adding the gravity element made it, you know, a whole new experience. And you know, last I looked, one of the top 10 games of all time. Two last points. You know, there's a there's a relentless focus on quality as Nintendo thinks about reinventing its franchises. And at the heart of this, as they go through this process, you know, they, they are driven by, you know, a famous quote from Shigeru Miyamoto. And that is that a bad game is bad forever, but if you work and make a game late, it's late only once. So the thought is, take your time, make sure it's as good as it can be before releasing that, that new piece of content. Wow. I mean, yeah, that, that's fantastic. And obviously, Nintendo's uh, sort of commitment to quality is, uh, is well known in the industry. Um, I think all of us who play Nintendo games have lived Miyamoto's quote there very much, um, but it, it's nice to hear it sort of echoed somehow um, in the culture, right? That it's it's not just something on a piece of paper, that it, it infuses the way that the games are made throughout the organization. And you talked a lot about Nintendo and experience, right? And sort of like what's critical to the experience. And there's a word that you didn't use, which was story or storytelling. And yet another very famous worldwide entertainment giant puts story absolutely front and center. If you ask a Disney employee, you know, what do you do? A lot of them will answer first and foremost, they are storytellers. Disney prioritizes story. And they're often also held up in a sort of gold standard at creating and cultivating timeless IPs. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on their approach and sort of what stood out for you over the years about that sort of maybe Disney way of working and I guess maybe in comparison to the Nintendo way of working. I I think Disney is a very interesting case study when you look at it literally over a, a 30 year or so time period. And I would say 
in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, Disney's approach with their intellectual property was to launch it and then put it in the box, meaning <laughs> you know, drive engagement with a theatrical release to then bring it out in a DVD format. And then literally they would lock it away for some number of years until they felt it was ready to be shown to that next generation. And I, I remember specifically with my own kids, introducing them to the classics of Disney that were just being re-released from the 50s and 60s um, during that time frame uh, in the 80s and 90s. I would then say that Disney went on uh, a slightly different path, focusing much more on ubiquity. So this was mm-hmm. you know, the launch of the Disney stores and, and you, know, you could buy something that featured their intellectual property in a variety of different ways, clothing, toys. It really was, I would argue, a much more ubiquity type of approach. And now jump to today. And you know, I'm, I'm just struck by the fact that within the last couple of weeks, You know, Disney announced over 50 different initiatives that are leveraging their intellectual property, their new expanded intellectual property, including the Marvel Universe and the Star Wars Universe. But, you know, this massive number of announcements that largely they're bringing direct to the consumer through Disney+. And so, you know, their their new incarnation and how they're managing their intellectual property is with a strong focus on direct-to-consumer and uh, mm-hmm. extending their properties, bringing new life into properties, telling new side stories within their mm-hmm. intellectual properties as a way to broaden it out. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. You know, Some people have reacted with questions around quality, right? Can, can all of these really be all that good that they're working on at the same time? We'll see. Time will tell. But it is different type of approach today than, you know, as I said, 30 years ago, where they were much more holding back their IP. And I would say right now they're letting it explode in a way uh, direct right. to consumer. Yeah. And it's 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 hard to look at what they're doing and say, that's not working or that's not going to work because... Uh, you know, clearly they're having they're having some successes with, as you said, the Marvel catalog. Uh, you know, the, obviously the Disney, the Pixar catalog, etc. Uh, that's really interesting. I hadn't actually thought of the sort of three eras of Disney like that. But I guess I may be sort of piggybacking off of that, or like a, a continuation of that. Who else catches your attention? What other companies? if there are other companies, did you feel have done or are doing an outstanding job at creating and, and protecting these sort of global entertainment IPs? Is there anyone else that you sort of paid attention to over the years? You know, so here's what's interesting. You know, as I personally have thought about examples of companies who've done a masterful job of managing their IP, and I, I would use these companies in conversations with senior Nintendo executives, Mr. Uh, Iwata, Mr. Miyamoto, as examples. Uh, But what I find interesting is that, in fact, Disney has bought some of my key examples. Lucas and Star Wars did a masterful job managing their IP. 
And, you know, you, you could say what you want about the, the prequel stories, but they were very purposeful in setting up, you know, what were the original three episodes of the Star Wars adventure. What they've done more recently with uh, Rogue Squadron and, and some of the, the other uh, side elements, I, I truly think has been masterful. And then obviously how they've brought that into a games experience. The other company I would use all the time was Marvel. I read comic books uh, early on, loved X-Men, loved the X-Men movies, loved the franchise. But there again, are they're a very interesting case study. As Marvel tried to transition as a pure play comics book company to a broader entertainment company, the fact is they stumbled. Um, and mm-hmm. they, they made some choices on which movies to release. They made choices on partnerships and how they locked up certain uh, intellectual property. And arguably, over the last 10 years, they focused on bringing back control of the Marvel Universe. So they're, they're a very interesting case study for a company that arguably at one point lost control of their intellectual property and then have been on a mission to really bring it back. So you know, those are two examples that, that I uh, have used and I continue to use just based on what they're doing. I'd say in the gaming space, I think there's some studios that have done a masterful job in creating uh, and driving their intellectual property. Rockstar, yeah, you, you, you know, what, what they've done with Grand Theft Auto, what they've done with Red Dead, uh, I think has been masterful. Bethesda has done a wonderful job. Uh, and I, I think right now in the moment, uh, the collection of Sto- Sony Studios and the content they're creating and building out new IP as a an executive and as someone who's looking out and and seeing how different companies are doing things, I think they are they are a very interesting story that is unfolding in front of us and how they're creating and managing new IP. Oh, that's very cool. I don't know if there's any people from Sony listening, but if there is, I'm sure they'll they'll take that as as high praise. Um, and it's it's also very interesting to hear after the fact that you know a Nintendo exec or an ex Nintendo executive throwing praise towards Sony. You don't always get that, so it's nice to see. Yeah, just to make the point, to me, this is one of the wonderful things about our industry. I mean, our our industry is dominant today in entertainment, by far bigger than music and and movies, including yeah. streamed video content. And yet, ours is actually a fairly small industry. Mm-hmm. I know the executives at Sony, at Microsoft, at Bethesda, so many of the companies. Actually, in my retirement, I've gotten to meet more executives mm-hmm. uh, from a variety of different places. So, uh, you know, I, I I do believe, you know, as an industry, we should be forthcoming with our our praise and our observations of what other creators are doing. We should we should take inspiration from that. Couldn't agree more. Okay, so uh, obviously Nintendo, very distinctly Japanese company, and yet their properties definitely resonate worldwide. Any sort of similar to how you were talking about some of the things that the developers kept in mind when trying to make, you know, sort of evergreen franchises or reinvent franchises, any uh, thoughts to share on, on how Nintendo does that? How do they make properties? How did you and your tenure at Nintendo help ensure that there are properties that might have been Japanese in origin and an original intention that became so so culturally relevant worldwide. You know, so uh, a few things. First, I think it's it's fair to say that Nintendo has its own 
very unique culture. I would not call it a traditional Japanese company. Um, its culture is very different than uh, other companies that are headquartered in Tokyo, for example. Being in the old emperor's capital of Kyoto, I think is a key part of what makes Nintendo's culture what it is. As the old emperor's capital, when the emperor moved to Tokyo, he would still send people back to Kyoto for the linens, the, the sake, mm. the, the pottery. And there's, there's this, uh, this thought of Kyoto craftsmanship. It's a, it's a level of oh. quality <clears throat> that is unsurpassed that really dates back to the earliest of times for Kyoto. And I believe that that Kyoto craftsmanship is a key part of the culture at Nintendo. It's this maniacal focus on quality. It's, it's a focus on making things the very best it could be. The other mm. piece I'd say about uh, Nintendo and its culture is that it's a company driven to do things that other people haven't done before. And that, and that dates back to its playing cards days, um, its history as a toy company. So innovation is, is really the driver in everything they do. In terms of the content and, and how the content is uh, ubiquitous in terms of its appeal, you know, it, it starts with the developer's mentality in, in creating mm -hmm. ideas and in, in particular creating gameplay that is universal. But the other piece I would have to highlight is uh, the, the localization team at Nintendo of America, right? This is, this is the group known as the Treehouse. This group does more than localize the content. They acculturize content. They really work hard and hand in hand with the developers to make sure that the the content is going to be globally appealing. And even when at its heart a franchise may have origins in Japan or in the medieval times of Japan and in this way I think of the franchise Fire Emblem, right, which at its heart has some some core Japanese components to it, but the Treehouse worked so hard to really broaden the appeal. And now, you know, this franchise is a key franchise for uh, Nintendo having success, not only on their, on their own uh, platforms, but also uh, in the mobile space. And so this group, and, and, you know, this is something I would challenge all of the developers who are, you know, watching this, you know, the, the group that works to, a culturized content and doing that hand in glove with the developers to me is so critical. And I, I would say that is a key part that has driven the success of Nintendo. So we all need treehouse teams. Um, curious, where did the name treehouse, you call it the treehouse team, where did that come from? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I have to honestly say that I myself don't know the true origin. There's a lot of stories that are told. You know, there's a lot of stuff um, in old, um, old news articles. But by the time I joined, it was already called the Treehouse. Every time I ask the question, so where did this start? You know, I get, get these little sheepish looks like, you know, they were trying to hold that secret very close to the vest. It's because they don't know either. 
That's right. That's right. It's a secret. Nobody knows the real truth. It just spontaneously grew out of nowhere. Okay. Um, you talked earlier about uh, games as a dominant entertainment form. Yay us. Uh, and you talked about movies and you talked about uh, cinema, sorry, and TV shows and radio and music and that kind of thing. Let's just spend a few minutes talking a little bit more about movies. You know, for years, uh, 20 some years, almost 30 some years, Nintendo didn't make live action movies. I mean, basically, there was the 2019 Detective Pikachu. And then before that, what I have here, the note is 93 Super Mario Brothers movie. And then in between, there was no live action. Um, so I would imagine there were plenty of opportunities. And so the fact that there weren't live action movies in that phase was probably a conscious decision. Anything to share on Nintendo's attitudes towards film and sort of maybe how it evolved over the years? Sure. And, and again, the, the 1993 movie predates me, you know, but I, I saw that as a consumer. You know, the, the, the facts are that movie lost something like three quarters of a billion dollars in 2020 dollars. Uh, I think if you look on any rating, um, it's got a pretty mediocre rating uh, as a as a film. And so it was uh, it was a low quality piece of content. Uh, whoever was involved, and and you know, of the three quarters of a billion, I don't know how much of that was uh, Nintendo money, but it lost money, and that was a shocking learning, I think, for the company. And as a result, the company decided that you know, should it do more outside of the gaming space, that it needed to have much more control. And so while you're right that the company didn't do any other live action films, they did a number of animated uh, films. There was animated Pokemon series. There was an animated Kirby series. There was in Japan an animated Legend of Zelda series. Uh, more recently in my tenure, uh, we did some work with Pikmin and created some, some short mm -hmm. films and then obviously entered into the agreement uh, to create a Super Mario movie. And so what the company learned is you need to have control of your destiny in this space, point number one. Point number two, the company made a focus to have senior most executives involved in this activity. So Mr. Miyamoto is heavily, heavily involved in the Super Mario movie. He was heavily, heavily involved in the Universal Studios uh, activity that's going to be launching uh, early next year. A number of other key Nintendo development executives were involved in that relationship with Universal Studios. So executive in involvement was the second thing they learned. And then the third thing they learned was that you need to work with great partners. And you know, investing a lot of time and energy to vet a partner, to make sure that the partner has a vision consistent with what you want to do uh, you know, was, a, was a key learning. And then as the company applied these learnings, it, it took time to find the right partner and figure out how to structure these types of activities. But you see a lot of that happening now. You, you see the, the Universal uh, Park activity, the, the Mario movie activity. And so, you know, that's what the company learned from that 93 oh, really debacle and how it's being applied today. I mean, that theme park looks fantastic. Uh, I 
it's hard for me to imagine getting on a plane, flying to the other side of the world, and then walking around bumping shoulders with a bunch of strangers. But if I were going to do that, it would be to go to that theme park because it looks wicked. Okay, so maybe maybe you have something to say to just flesh that out. What you just said about the sort of lessons learned was really interesting. But at, at the heart of that is, is perhaps maybe a, a sort of conflict that is perceived in making movies, right? You've got the artistic tug of war between the director, uh, the actors perhaps, and, and perhaps the, the, the business considerations, the executives of Nintendo or, or what have you. Um, any further thoughts on that and sort of how that tug of war manifests and whether there's any lessons to be learned there for, for future people facing this? You know, I, I, I think in, in our industry, in, in, the, in the broader entertainment industry, there's always going to be conflict. And, and I would highlight the conflict is between three different parts of the business. First, you've got the creative side. And whether that's yeah. internal or external, you know, the creative side wants to have a masterpiece. They want this to be so compelling, so never been done before. And all of those desires are exactly right, but they, they do need to be moderated by the other two parts of the business that are actively involved in creating this work. So in addition to the creative side, you've got the business side. And you know, the business side has to be the part that makes sure that you know, things run to budget, that to the extent there's added investments, that those added investments make sense. Because in the end, ours is a business, right? And, and whether it's creating games, whether it's creating movies, you need to find a way to make money in the venture because otherwise it's a charity. And last I looked, none yeah. of us are running charities. Uh, and then the third conflict is what I would broadly call culture. And what I mean by culture is, you know, what's going to be appropriate at the time and what's going to make sense in today as well as potentially looking out into the future. So there's a relevance that needs to be thought about. There's a sense of, am I, am I telling a story that potentially can live on and, and truly be mm -hmm. a timeless masterpiece? Or is it something that's just going to live in today? And certainly, to the extent you create something that has longer legs and is, is a more core part of culture, global culture, your right. success rate can be higher. You know, so those, those, are, those are the different elements that I see and, and how they all interplay. And in, in my view, one of these you know, shouldn't be dramatically stronger than the other. If you've got an effort that's purely driven by the creative side, that can be a problem, just like an effort that, that's purely driven by the business side could be a problem. And so in, in my view, these three vectors need to be managed in tandem in order to get the best piece of content, the most compelling piece of content that you can get. You know, and again, it's not easy. There are you know, a limited handful of companies that do this uh, in a phenomenal way. But as I think about this broader entertainment space, that's how I see the, the ebb and flow and the different parts of an organization that need to come together to create something that's, uh, that's truly going to be masterful. No, and it's great. And the question was specific to movies. You've broadened it to entertainment as a whole, which is wonderful. 
and and I I love what you said about the the third team, the sort of cultural team, almost like the cultural resonance team or something like that. And I I immediately started building in my head pictures of this this sort of modified version of the treehouse team, right? Whose job isn't just to think how does this thing work within our culture today, but it's like, how can we predict where our culture is going in the next few years? And is this piece of creative going to kind of, you know, weather the storm as it were? So that's wonderful. It's really interesting. And it it actually creates a wonderful bridge as we continue talking about uh, sort of the different branches of entertainment. Um, Rovio are obviously a, a mobile games first uh, company. And so mobile is, is, is something we believe in, we take very, very seriously. Uh, for years, Nintendo didn't do mobile. Um, and then in 2016, you know, that changed. Uh, and, and Nintendo is, you know, dipping its toes in or, you know, depending on your point of view, you know, jumping into the deep end. Um, so I guess I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think uh, about Nintendo's ventures into mobile and how do you think these ventures into mobile affected the company's uh, thinking about IPs moving forward? So the topic of mobile within Nintendo, you know, was was an actively discussed topic. From the outside, there was tremendous pressure of people saying, well, just take your Game Boy Advance games or take those early DS games and just put them on mobile. Or better yet, take the library of Nintendo Entertainment Software or Super Nintendo Entertainment Software, just put that on mobile You'll make a ton of money. And I, I think the Nintendo executives were quite right in saying, no, that's that's not going to be the way for this company to enter mobile. If we're going to do something, right, going back to the ethos of it has to be mm-hmm. the highest quality, it has to be unique mm-hmm. and differentiated, the company believed that in order to go into mobile, it needed to approach it in a way consistent with those values in a way to do it successfully. So lots and lots of conversation, lots of thought uh, around how to enter this space. And in 2015, uh, Mr. Iwata, uh, you know, in a press conference announced that Nintendo was entering into mobile, created uh, a number of uh, business partnerships in order to try and do it as effectively as possible. And, and that, that was the, the key driver, how to do this effectively. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say, right, as an observer looking at the results, that Nintendo is still learning how to be successful in the mobile business. And they are recognizing, and and this is for all of the mobile developers that are watching this, that mobile is a unique space that has its own development challenges and its own ways of driving monetization. And that's different than selling single packaged games. And that's a learning experience that Nintendo is still going through. I would say that Nintendo has produced some really high quality initiatives in the mobile space. Super Mario Run as a piece of content, and is it fun and is it compelling and is it true to the Mario experience? Absolutely. But there was a monetization choice made that really minimized its access and minimized the monetization. You yeah. look at uh, uh, what the company's doing with Fire Emblem, a different monetization scheme, by the way, and they're having quite a bit of uh, success. So, you know, the company is learning. 
you know, I, I say all of this as an observer uh, who's, you know, been away from the company for coming up on 20 months. But, you know, the, I, I do believe that the company is going to continue to work in this area. And that's because the fundamental reasons that Nintendo entered mobile are still there, right? The ability to reach and touch consumers in a way that they can't with their dedicated consoles. And this reach is especially important when you get into markets where the purchase of a console is, you know, it's it's a super luxury item. You know, I, I ran mm-hmm. the market in Brazil, for, uh, for example, as the leader for Nintendo of America. Tremendously difficult market because of the per capita income compared to the pricing of, of consoles and games in the marketplace. And yet... Nintendo has had tremendous success in Brazil, in China, in um, in parts of the Middle East with their mobile initiatives, where consumers are experiencing some of their franchises for the first time. So, you know, those underlying drivers continue to be there for the company. They're going to continue to uh, to go after this, and they're realizing, you know, how challenging it is to create and monetize mobile content. Hmm. It'd be wonderful to be a fly on the wall of of the Nintendo executives right now evaluating games like Genshin Impact, right, which clearly owe a lot of their providence to Nintendo games and sort of saying, uh-huh, hmm, let's see what notes can we take from that and then how that trickles back. Uh, be fascinating. Um, so you touched upon this briefly uh, when you were sort of saying Nintendo said, no, we're not just going to port everything to mobile even though we can. But let's talk a little bit about oversaturation. Uh, You've got YouTube, you've got Netflix, you've got Vimeo, you've got a million different platforms out there. Uh, You know, if your thing is on a screen, there are so many screens these days that you could broadcast your thing on as to be overwhelming, right? How does one weigh opportunity versus oversaturation? How do you think about the opportunity of almost infinite screens uh, versus, you know, the challenges of oversaturation. <clears throat> you know, so, so this is this is a really broad topic um, in terms of thinking about platforms and whether they be video-based platforms, video streaming, as an example, whether you think about gaming platforms or gaming access platforms like uh, Android and Apple. Uh, whether you think about you know, what platforms can be in the future. And so uh, l- let me start by answering this generally, and then we could get okay. into some specifics. You know, when, I, when I think about business opportunity, the first question I always ask is, what's the objective? What are we trying to accomplish? And it's interesting, you know, this is where you see the personal legacy you've left on an organization, because I would be relentless in this. You know, I'd be in a meeting with Nintendo executives in Kyoto, and I'd be challenging, what's the objective? Fundamentally, what are we trying to do? I would ask my team uh, at uh, Nintendo of America the same questions. And I have to say, it was gratifying to see uh, in, in, in the last few years at Nintendo of America that people would always start conversation with, here's our objective, right? Here's what we're trying to achieve. Boom, right? Here's, here's a clarity of what it is that we're trying to do. So then the second question I would ask is, is what we're trying to do something unique, right? How is it differentiated? How is it going to do something differently, maybe even better 
than what's being done today. Because you know we're, we're battling for time, we're battling for share of wallet across all of the other things that consumers can do. And so yeah, how and is my <laughs> particular opportunity compelling to the consumer that I'm trying to reach? Which then drives the next question of who is it that I'm trying to reach, right? Who's the target uh, and why should they care? And this area is fascinating. Um, and I'll, I'll tell a very short story. So in some of my ver- first conversations with Mr. Miyamoto, we would have these debates about Target because in his mind, in the creator's mind, I want everyone to buy my game. Yeah. I want everyone to buy my game. And I would push back and say, you know, Mr. Miyamoto, I can't market to everybody. I've got to focus my messaging. Now, hopefully with a compelling product, it'll branch out. We'll get adjacents within my target audience. But I have to start with an understanding of who's my target. Um, and so this was a very interesting dynamic between, you know, at the time, the marketing executive and the creator around being thoughtful around who it is that you're trying to appeal to. The fourth question I always ask about new opportunities is, how am I going to make money, right? In the end, where's the profitability in this idea? And as an organization, how are we going to make money in this? Uh, and so that's the way I think about, let me call it broad opportunities, platform opportunities. Today, there are so many different screens. There's so many different ways to reach a potential consumer. Um, but I, I think those four questions continue to be you know, tremendously relevant in thinking about how to approach really any opportunity. No, that's great. And um, yeah, definitely um, guiding principles can, can really take what can otherwise be such a messy conversation with egos and opinions and ideas and hopes and dreams and focus it down into something where it's not about opinion so much as it is about fact. And that that can be really, really important. So um, certainly I, I, I appreciate those four core questions as a, <clears throat> an important strategy in, in, in kicking off these these concepts. Let's close the loop on IP development. You know, you talked earlier about the putting it in the box, right? Disney you know, would put it in the box and so it would sit in the vault for a while. And then eventually they would be like, okay, we're ready to re-release. And that's when the machine would kick in. You would have, and then you talked about their second gen where it's like, oh, well, we're going to have the toys and the games and the merchandise and the, you know, I don't know, whatever, uh, toilet paper and everything you can imagine is going to be licensed and branded according to these characters. As the world goes more digital, do you see the increase of digital changing how IP development works moving forward? Do you see, you know, the next Mario that'll be developed in 2030 or whatever, will it follow a very, very different development path than say, you know, Mario did originally because the world has changed, because digital has manifested in so many people's lives so so strongly? Yeah, I absolutely believe that... 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the digitization of entertainment is going to fundamentally change how new entertainment properties are brought to life out in the marketplace. Absolutely. You know, again, based on consumer access to those screens, distribution models, all of that is absolutely going to come into play. However, I do believe that physical is going to continue to be important. Right. And, and I, I would paint this vision 
when we were talking about the different Nintendo initiatives in broadening mm -hmm. its IP. And that was, you know, I, I want to surround the consumer with my intellectual property. So the example I would give is, you know, I, I'm a consumer and I've been sleeping in my Super Mario uh, bedsheets and I wake up and I put on my Super Mario t-shirt and my Super Mario Vans. And as I'm on my way to work or way to school, I'm playing Super Mario on my device of choice, whatever that is, whether it's today and it's the Nintendo Switch or it's 2040 and it's something else. And uh, after I go to work or go to school, I go watch a Super Mario movie and then I get home and I make plans to go to the Super Mario theme park, right? So these are a combination of physical and digital experiences that in the end are surrounding my consumer. And I, I think in the end, that's the objective. You want to surround your consumer with ways to engage with your intellectual property the way they want to and the way for them to then show off their love of that intellectual property, hopefully motivating other people to maybe try out or engage that intellectual property. I, I continue to believe that that is the mission of IP creators, content creators. How do you surround your consumer with your intellectual property in, in a variety of different ways, including ways that you know today we haven't even thought of? Hmm. A brand ecosystem, as it were. Exactly. It, I mean, uh, it's it, you know, it's why we're seeing some of these crossovers today, right? You know, a Roblox event. Yeah that literally has tens of millions of people engaged or Fortnite. Now, you know, I, I have to say you need to be careful also as that IP holder and content creator, you know, again, as the dominant form of entertainment, there are a lot of people who want to access your IP to build their own brand. And so as the IP yes, holder indeed. and content creator, you need to stay as pure as possible. And yes, engaging with other partners they need to share your mission. They need to share your values. They need to, in some way, add value to what it is that you're trying to do. Otherwise, it's what I call borrowed interest. And you know, anyone who ever worked with me knows I hate the concept of borrowed interest. Someone who's just you know tagging on your coattails that really doesn't help you, or when you as a brand are trying to tag on someone else's coattails, you know that never is a winning proposition. Wow, that is amazing. And yeah, uh, I look at the um, the brand crossovers that are all over the place these days. You see the the Travis Scott concerts and the the little Nas X little Nas X in Roblox was thirty one million people. I mean, I, it's unbelievable. He couldn't even in his wildest dreams, even if he was touring nonstop twenty four seven three sixty five, he wouldn't hit thirty one million people. And he does one live show in Roblox, and boom, it's thirty one million people. Hopefully. Little Nas X and Roblox did indeed share the same values and did indeed share the same goals. And, and we'll see more of these sort of fruitful collaborations moving forward. Um, you actually covered my last question because I wanted to talk to you about brand crossovers and you, 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 you gave me everything I was looking for. Reggie, I have really greatly, deeply enjoyed this chat. You know, you and I met briefly once many, many years ago at an E3 it was an absolute pleasure to meet you again, to spend all this time picking your brains, learning from you, your experience, your time at Nintendo, your time outside of Nintendo. On my behalf, thank you very much for sharing the time with me. Thank you very much for sharing your time with 
the IGDA Finland and Rovio. And uh, I hope you and yours have a wonderful holiday. Ben, thank you so much for that. Uh, and thank you so much for the opportunity. And that's it for another episode of Tomorrow with Rovio. I hope you enjoyed this opportunity to get some insights from one of gaming's visionary executives and found some inspiration from how he saw and continues to see the world of entertainment and its evolution. If you haven't already done so, I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast through your platform of choice. We've got more fantastic guests lined up in early 2021 and would love to hear your thoughts on who else we should be talking to as we explore the future of entertainment. Thanks again for listening and goodbye.